0: and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast and before we get going, just a quick reminder about a special offer we've got at the moment. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for just £12 as well as a £20 Amazon voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward voucher. First up, cometh the hour, cometh the man. On the podcast we discuss whether Boris's time has finally come. Is he the man to save the Tories from Nigel Farage? We talk to his former right-hand man about his chances. We also look at the latest frontier of political correctness. Can fantasy fiction be racist? And finally, we wonder why are people so squeamish about meat these days? First, is Boris Johnson the man to beat in the Tory leadership contest? This week's cover article, written by James Forsyth, argues that Boris is back, but the biggest threat to his leadership campaign is himself. In the past, he's been bad at organisation, discipline, and getting other MPs on side. So, will this campaign be different? Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, spoke to James earlier, together with Will Warden, Boris's former adviser and communications director.
1: James, in this week's cover piece, you say the worst things are for the Tories, the better they are for Boris Johnson. So looking at the polls, Tories are plummeting. Are things looking up for him?
2: Yes, definitely. I think six months ago, you wouldn't have said that he was the front runner for the Tory leadership. I think he now is. And I think the reason he is, is that Tory MPs are looking at the polls. They are looking at the Brexit party, taking a huge chunk out of a Tory vote. And they are wondering who can win those voters back. And that is leading to a lot of MPs, including some who wouldn't expect to, taking another look at Boris Johnson. And, you know, there is this argument, you know, if the question is how do you get those voters back, he is the simplest and most obvious answer to it.
1: Now, Will, you worked for Boris for several years, and in James's cover piece, he remarks that the biggest threat to Boris Johnson's campaign is Boris himself. Do you think
3: that's fair? I think it probably is fair. You know, Boris... Boris's great uh, strength and advantage as a communicator is also his great disadvantage in many ways, that in being able to communicate with people, people wonder if he's serious enough. Uh, And when it comes to campaigns themselves, the reason he won in 2008 and the reason he won in 2012, as well as force of personality and authenticity, was fundamentally message discipline and having one leader. And that leader wasn't Boris, that leader was Linton Crosby. And the question this time round will be, can he resist the temptation to pick up the phone and ring people and, and and talk to them ad hoc? Can he resist the temptation to go off message in terms of what he's trying to sell? So what I've seen so far would indicate that he has learned the lessons of 2016, when I think probably post-referendum he was pretty knackered and wasn't focused on the, entirely in the task at hand. And I think if he's got that person and he invests in that person and they are the person that MPs know is is running that campaign and the message discipline is tight then i think he's got a pretty good chance
1: now you touched on some of boris johnson's potential flaws there the ones that james points out in his piece include disorganization too many advisors and a lack of discipline and strategy do, do you think that's fair that those are the factors he need to work on to make it second time lucky
3: I think some of that is true. I I wouldn't say that having too many advisors is a problem in the sense that Boris likes to take opinion and then reach a conclusion. But it's very different from the position of, say, being the mayor and doing that or being the foreign secretary and doing that or, as he wants to be, being the prime minister and doing that and running a campaign. Now, Boris is a great campaigner out on the road. This sort of thing, the votes of his colleagues, is not his prime territory. He is not great one-on-one with people. He's fundamentally quite a shy individual, I think would come across as a surprise to to many people. So I think it is about articulating to colleagues who probably are a little bit concerned that he's all gags and no substance, that there is a vision there and that he has the stomach for the fight and that he is able to make the tough choices. And certainly, you know, from the outside, what I've seen recently is that he's developed, I think, a harder skin about these things. He's not as interested in pleasing everybody as he as he perhaps once was, because he knows that, fundamentally, he owns Brexit because of the part he played in the campaign. That weighs very heavily on him. And I think he knows this is his big chance and his last chance.
1: Now, the illustration to your piece, James, in the magazine is Boris Johnson, you could say in his heyday on a zip wire during the Olympics when I think Boris mania was sweeping the capital, if not the country. You talk of this near pathological desire to be liked that Boris Johnson has since the EU referendum. Has he struggled with the fact that he is now seen as a divisive figure?
2: I think one of the things that went so wrong in 2016 was that this guy who had been a kind of, you know, had kind of Queen Mother Syndrome, that people had always liked him, you know, suddenly comes out of his house to find hundreds of people shouting abuse at him. He's in a situation where lots of talking to someone close to him that lots of people during the campaign who had been fine about the fact that Boris was for Brexit were suddenly sending him messages saying, What have you done? Like this is awful, this is a disaster. And I think he psychologically found that quite difficult. And I think one of the one of the missteps in that campaign was that, you know, he instinctively tried to kind of reassure people. You know, he wrote that Telegraph column kind of slightly suggesting that nothing was going to change. That alienated some other supporters. You know, this was part of the problem. I think he is more reconciled to where his political position is in terms of, you know, that he is a, a, a Brexiteer. I also think that one of the other questions that people have about Boris is, you know, Again, people say that when he was at Transport for London, you know, he didn't go and fire all the people on six-figure salaries because he quite wanted to get on with them when he went to the Foreign Office. He, you know, he wanted the respect of his officials, even if they disagreed with on things. I think he has become more aware of the kind of, if you want to deliver the kind of Brexit he wants... the you are going to have to kind of grab hold of a government machine to do that. I also think, though, that if you talk to our MPs who have been to see him, you know, he is now. I think this is slightly Panglossian, but I think he his aim is to kind of, you know, Brexit might be divisive, but we're going to unify the party on domestic policy with all of his one nation stuff. Now, I think he really does think that because he is, you know, he is not of the Tory right in the classic sense. But I I think it is rather optimistic to think that Dominic Grieve is going to think, ah, I might disagree with him on Brexit, but we agree on the following other issues. I think that that is going to be one of the things. But I think he definitely will try and run in this campaign. And one of the things that will be different between him and Dominic Raab is he will try and run as a Brexiteer, but not not a kind of straight down the line Tory right candidate.
3: Yeah, just to pick up on that, two points. I think he was badly affected by... The reception to what happened in 2016, and it certainly knocked his mojo and, and the way that he operated for a while. I, I think clearly he's got over that, and part of that, as I've said before, is is owning this. He, he needs to deliver now, and he knows, he knows that. And the point you made is very interesting, that that divide between him and someone like Dom Raab, and that's very clear. He's going around telling Tory MPs, here is my record for eight years in municipal government in London doing a cracking job for a city that was falling off a cliff in 2008 and wasn't In 2016. That One Nation Tory delivery is part of the Boris Mantra, even though he is running as a right-wing Brexiteer. And that will be the thing that distinguishes him from the other Brexit candidates.
1: Now Boris Johnson has confirmed in quite good timing for your piece, James, that he does plan to run for leadership when there is a vacancy. On a practical level, before we even get to, I suppose what Hadoop if he manages to get into number 10, he faces his first hurdle, which is getting through the parliamentary party and onto the membership. We know from all the polling that Boris is very popular with the grassroots, but less so with the parliamentary party. How can he overcome that hurdle, Will?
3: From what I hear, he's already doing some of that. And some of it is a an anathema to the way that Boris has previously operated. Uh, People criticise the idea that he couldn't, you know, go and do one-on-ones or one-on-fives with colleagues and tell them what he thought – He's knuckled down and and he's doing that. He's thought about what he wants to tell them and and he's doing that and he's doing it with with rigour and and discipline. The question is, over the course of, say, the next couple of months, has he got the longevity in that to to keep on having those one-on-ones, to keep working hard in order to convince his colleagues that he is more than a one-gag wonder, that he has a vision post-Brexit? Everything I see at the moment would suggest that he's doing that in spades.
1: Now, we expect at the moment, barring a shock event that we had had a couple of times in the past few years, that the next leadership contest will occur when the UK has not left the EU. And that means we're going to hear various Brexit pitches. Now, James, when it comes to Boris Johnson's own Brexit pitch, any potential leader who countenances a no-deal Brexit... Even as a Plan B, is in effect saying they're prepared to take the party into a general election. Do you think that is something that will scare off MPs from backing Boris?
2: I think it will. I think this general election does scare Tory MPs. I think one of the problems for any candidate prepared to countenance a general election is this: is the Brexit Party wouldn't stand down. You know, Nigel Farage has got you know the scent in his nostrils. He's not going to say, oh. Now, as a Brexiteer, as Tory leader, I'm standing down and say, Oh, you last years have shown you can't trust the Tories with Brexit. And the question then becomes you know, with the Brexit party running, how can the Tories win a majority? And I think that that is a, a big and difficult question to get over. You know, the argument of those close to Boris Johnson is, you know, if you've got a leader who's prepared to put no deal back on the table, suddenly. You know, you'll unlock some concessions from the EU. I think set against that is that the so many people in Brussels he is the kind of personification of what they perceive as irresponsible populism, and they wouldn't they wouldn't be keen to hand him a win. But I think I think his challenge has got to be something about you know that that worry about a general election is going to be an issue for Tory MPs. I mean, it is it is striking that some of that one of the things that is being said by the other candidates who are two Tory MPs is, look, you know, Boris Johnson or Dominic Rob, you're going to end up in a general election in six months. Do you really want that? And obviously, if you're a Tory MP sitting on a majority that you're not so sure of, you're not convinced about that.
1: Now, the consensus appears to be that yeah. Boris Johnson, as leader of the Tory party, would certainly help the party to get more votes from perhaps voters who have moved to the Brexit party under Nigel Farage. However, Boris's critics point out that when it comes to more metropolitan voters, voters who voted for the party in 2015, it would be a much harder sell. Do you think he can still appeal to that section of the electorate, Will?
3: Well, I think if he's... Going to win an election, he has to. Uh, the truth is, he has to toe a very difficult middle ground line in terms of those hard Brexit voters who want out. And I, I agree with James, I think that there's absolutely no doubt that he will be able to, he will certainly scare European leaders around Brexit. But in terms of that centrist agenda, he is, you know, he, he won in a city that was Labour facing twice. And, and he won for a reason. And that is that he is a socially liberal, low tax. One nation Tory who believes in big infrastructure, who believes in regional devolution and investing in the regions and and power to government in those regions. So it's a very difficult line to tread and it will be very interesting to see how he does that. But in order to win, he has to do that.
1: Now, I know it's unfair to ask for predictions on this podcast, but I was just wondering, given all the obstacles we have just talked about, what do the pair, of you feel, the odds are on Boris Johnson being the next leader of the Tory party?
3: Will, you can start. Oh, I wish you'd let James start. Um, <laughs> I think they are decent. I think there are a lot of things uh, in his way. And I think I'm not going to put it as a a sort of 50-50. I'm not sure that being favourite actually at this stage helps him particularly.
2: I, I think he is currently the man to beat in that if you look at the dynamic of a contest, I think, you know, if he gets to the members round, he will win. And I think at the moment he looks to be on course to be in that final too. And I mean that that you, know, I, feel, I suspect when he comes out of the parliamentary round, he will come out second in the parliamentary round rather than first. But I think he is in a, he is in a good position right now. But I think what makes predicting this leadership race so hard is a lot of it depends on factors that we the precise you know nature of the context we were talking earlier about you know when the second reading of this withdrawal agreement bill comes does boris johnson vote for it or not i think that will be quite an important signal to mps on, on on both sides of the brexit divide and that's one of the challenges for him if he votes for it he probably loses ground on that erg wing but if he votes against it amongst that kind of bit of a tory party that just want this thing done they'll be like oh crikey you know he's one of the reasons why it's not done so i think this is you know there are a series of difficult choices for him ahead but you know right now i think you know he is the man to be
0: thank you james thank you will that was katie james and will walden and if you'd like to hear more political analysis from katie and james do tune in to our daily politics podcast coffeehouse shots at spectator.co.uk forward slash shots next can fancy novels be politically incorrect Amelie Wen Zhao, a young Asian-American writer, was on the receiving end of a social justice backlash recently when her yet-to-be-published fantasy novel was accused of being racist. So, where's the line to be drawn between fantasy and reality? I'm joined by Karen Yostman, who writes about this story in this week's issue, and Sam Leith, our literary editor. Karen, can you start at the beginning and tell us about what's happened to Amelie Wen Zhao? So, Amelie is in her mid-twenties. She's actually a
4: banker. And uh, in her spare time, she wrote a young adult novel. And before the manuscript had even been published, um, a tirade on Twitter against her sort of arose and it was because of what people believed were her representations of certain events in the book. So it's a fantasy novel um, and it's set in Russia or sort of a magical version of Russia. And she had included depictions of slavery and also potentially there was a character who was described as having bronze and tawny skin, which some people believed to be a black character, although she never explicitly said that anywhere. And the problems were that people believed her depiction of slavery was inappropriate because she was they believed it was based on American slavery, and thus uh, she had transported it into a different um, setting, which was believed to be inappropriate, particularly because she herself is not black. so the idea was that she ought not to be writing about it because she it, it was something that's in theory nothing to do with her and Then the character uh, with the bronze skin um, she killed off that character and again it was there was controversy because people believed she had used a black character inappropriately. Although, again, there was not that much evidence to suggest that it was indeed a black character. It started on Twitter um, and on other websites such as Goodreads, which are quite influential in publishing and particularly for the YA as its known audience. And people started attacking her, writing reviews, writing blog posts. No one had actually, or very few people, had, as I understand it, had actually read the. The book. Um, some people were dealing with galley copies or just excerpts that they'd seen, in one case even just the blurb on the, that the publishers had sent out ahead of the release. So they had very little to go on and yet they managed to cause enough noise to uh, effectively It caused her to withdraw the book. So at first she said that she was simply withdrawing it from publication, but a few weeks ago she came out and said that she has rewritten it with the help of multicultural experts and something called sensitivity readers, which I don't know if listeners will have been introduced to already, um, are becoming more and more popular um and what are they what are they it's an excellent question so my understanding is they are people who are being asked to read manuscripts and comment on whether the minority figures are being accurately and appropriately represented she has now rewritten the book and it's going to be scheduled for release in november whether or not that appeases her critics is unclear um it may be that that's still not enough, but she's one of many young authors that this has happened to.
0: But she's the most recent and sort of high-profile example. Sam, what do you make of all of this? I mean, should we be holding fantasy novels to these sort of very no, high standards? No, I think it's, a,
5: it's obviously kind of insane. I mean, it's sort of hilarious that the that the objection is, you know, you can't appropriate slavery and put it in Russia. You know, complete <laughs> face palm about the ignorance of history there. I mean, what I what I wonder though, if I'm if I'm going to be devil's advocate about this, is whether there is, you know, the sort of hard cases make bad law point that the, there is a thin end of the wedge, and you can hold something like this, which is evidently ridiculous, that people are kind of, you know, attacking a book for, you know, it's inappropriateness, whatever that means, you know, long before publication, long before anyone's read it, and use those sort of instances to entirely discredit the idea that there is a conversation that's worth having about the way in which fiction, you know, depicts its characters and indeed depicts minority characters. I mean, of course, in you know, fantasy fiction, you're in a whole world of trouble with, you know, elves and so forth who who obviously don't have sensitivity representatives. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the cultural appropriation row has become badly polarised because on the one hand you've got people saying, you know, making the intellectually entirely respectable point you know, which is a reductive absurdum that if you can't imagine yourself into somebody different from yourself, you know, as you quoted in your excellent piece, the, you know, Lionel Shriver's point that, you know, the only thing we're left is memoir, you know, fiction involves, you know, taking on different persona and involving... So, you know, you get that kind of reductive absurdum to memoir, and on the other hand, you get the, I think, and there's a problem with the word, the the phrase cultural appropriation that I think is, is a problem, because appropriation... Implies that certain st- and and it's as as much as you know people use that language. They say certain stories belong to certain communities. You cannot write the story of a trans person or a you know black person or a slave or a you know whatever the minority historically or presently is without being that person because those stories belong to them. And I think that is also you know palpable nonsense. I mean, it seems to me that. You know, when writers are taking on other characters, there is always that thing that, you know, you probably... It's not that you can't do it, but you might not do it well. You know, you're likely to fail at, fail at art if you're attempting to present within a realistic paradigm a kind of character who's, you know so, whose experience is so far from your own. And I think it is true to say that there is, again, at one quite extreme end of the whole conversation, a danger in... Because, you know, fiction, we can't say, oh, well, it's just an individual thing. You know, you're creating an individual work of the imagination. The reason we read fiction, the reason we like fiction, is because we identify with it, we, it resonates. And so when you're creating characters, you are in some sense creating archetypes or things that plug into something archetypal. And if you produce an archetype in your book of, you know, a, a grasping, money-obsessed Jewish character who's, you know, that is going to be offensive and likewise, you produce the benevolent archetype of, you know, you know, all sort of your black characters are, you know, dignified or, you know, as, you know, Sandy McCall Smith, you know, Myra Motsway who's a lo- lovely roly-poly kind of lady with a headscarf on her head and, you know, probably a little bit stereotypical in a more apparently benevolent way. You know, there are those conversations are worth having. And I think they're more to do actually with publishing than writing. Mm.
4: I mean, it, yes, and, and absolutely, and I think there is, um, you know, nuance and, and discussion to be had. I think in this case, a particular with you're dealing with a lot of, you know, not to be accused of ageism, but quite young writers and fans of writing and, and that sort of thing, um, and so the, the feeling runs quite high. But it does create sort of instances of absurdity because, for example, and taking up on one of the the points that you said, I mean, there was one um, writer called Cosco Jackson and he had tweeted that stories about civil rights movement should be written by black people, stories of suffrage should be written by women, Uh, why is this so hard to get? But when he got, and he was a sensitivity reader as well and it's sort of uh, one of his careers, when he wrote his first novel he set it in war-torn Kosovo and so that then raised, so he himself ended up withdrawing his novel because people felt the depictions no, I mean of Muslims no. <laughs> in, in his yes, Why is that so
5: hard to get? I mean that's the, it's that simplistic but, aspect but of it's, it's just these people are idiots But know? it's,
4: it's <laughs> the irony that when he sat down to write he didn't want to write his own exact story, he wanted to use his imagination and set it somewhere that he had no experience of, he's American oh, I don't know how much experience he has as Of Kosovo, but I I don't imagine too much. So it's that inherent contradiction of of what fiction should be, and of course that there can be very unhelpful or ugly stereotypes within that. I mean, you know, even you know, for example, Fagin has always been a a kind of a very uh, uh, you know ugly character, problematic, Uh, problematic, (laughs) exactly. But um, actually, I think I've always personally felt that it's much better to get these things out in the open because all of this um, sort of suppression of those kinds of ideas, I feel, are more dangerous because you're not actually ever going to get rid of those ideas by not talking about them and I think the example that I always use is that I went to a Jewish school and my politics teacher for A-level actually gave us excerpts of Mein Kampf to read which today I imagine would have you know she probably would have been fired for that but it was extremely eye-opening it was extremely helpful I think to read you know directly from the text there was no literal harm done which is you know it was it was an important exercise in in reading ugly ideas and and
0: learning how to respond to them, and I,
4: I mean, think maybe
5: when you talk about non-fiction, that takes a conversation to a slightly different sure, territory, yeah. doesn't it?
0: Sam yeah. um, so in Karen's piece. One of the things she talks about is some of the, you know, sort of famous fantasy authors and what they're now being accused of. So Tolkien's being accused of being racialized, and C.S. Lewis, yeah, he's racist, me racist. <laughs> um, I mean, what do you? I mean, do you think there are books nowadays that perhaps wouldn't sort of pass these tests that are being applied? Oh, well, there lots, lots published of books that now. wouldn't
5: pass these tests that are applied. I mean, the thing is historical. Fantasy, you know, all sorts of fantasy. I mean, you know, J.K. Rowling's had some flack because the goblins at Gringotts are seen in some quarters as, you know, Jewish stereotypes. There's the, the orcs in, you know, there is a definitely, particularly in fantasy, there's quite a racialized setup because quite often fantasy relies on, you know, you've got your elves and your goblins <laughs> and your dwarves and your whatever it is. You know, Tolkien was responsible for a lot of this and, you know, they are races and there are good ones and bad ones. So yeah, almost almost no historical fiction I think is going to pass very much muster um with the woke police and I think that's why the more extreme of the woke police are easily dismissed but the subtler conversations, I think, are still worth having.
4: Well, I think what's in- particularly interesting is that, you know, J.K. Rowling is someone who is particularly aware of that and very se- very much wants to be seen to be woke. And yet her attempts to sort of backpedal and say that, you know, one of the characters, Hermione, can be read as black and, um, and that Dumbledore was in a passionate relationship with a male wizard, I mean, it's far more than I... Really needed to well, know. Well, it's not in the
5: text. is it? I mean, I think that's right. one, of the, one of the kind of quite far things that's paradoxically. She says, well, actually, Hermione could be black, and Hermione could be black. I don't think she specifies Hermione's skin colour anywhere in the seven books. But, you know, there's no textual warrant for her, Hermione being black. If she says Hermione could be black, is she then accused of cultural appropriation because Hermione is black? Um, <laughs> you you know, it's in the idea that there's the old reader reception theory coming out to the fore. You know, the readers could go, well, I, I, I've decided Hermione's black, and JK had no right to write a black character and therefore we should (laughs) specify her skin colour. I mean... You know, but, but, and we're is, heading down the rabbit hole. Though.
4: That is one of the contradictions in this argument, which is that on the one hand, there is there are calls for greater representation, but then those authors who are perhaps trying to write from the points of view or include minority characters are then sort of attacked for, for not writing them authentically because, well, they never can, because if they are themselves not from that minority group. so you something you have to make up your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, it, it's a contradiction in terms.
5: I mean, I think, I suppose behind it, which is why I mentioned the publishing industry, is this point that... Part of the beef is a, is a wider one to do with the fact that publishing is, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, privileged, white, middle class. I mean, I was going to say male, but actually it's not, at the most yeah. of, you know, it's very largely female. And that there's a sense that it's not that they're looking for, you know, white, privileged, middle class people to write more representations of minorities. It's more that they want more minorities representatives in publishing as editors and as publishers and of course as writers so that those books are getting airtime and shelf space and i think that's a reasonable complaint i don't know that that simply saying you know if you're white you're only allowed to write white characters in your books is the solution to that
4: and that's entirely correct but i think what has also happened is that some of those writers who are coming through and breaking through into the industry are themselves feeling as though they are only allowed to write about their own personal experiences of being from an ethnic minority and some of them don't want to write that either yes, or they don't
5: want to write a particular, I mean that sort of yeah. publishing pushes you often towards this sort of idea that you know, if you're writing you know, one particular sort of ethnic minority <laughs> there is a kind of stereotype, you know, publishing's appetite for those books, I mean I think in a weird way Diana Evans's, you know, pointedly titled Ordinary People was great because it's a, it's a book about a pair of middle class black couples and it's not at all about being oppressed. It's very little, you know, actually what's sort of racially interesting about it is that the race isn't coded. They're saying, look, these, these are ordinary people. They're black. They're having experiences that you'd have in any middle class novel. And we're not having to write about, you know, except in a sort of, you know, occasional and truthful way about their experience of racism. It's not, you know, that's not the focus. The focus is actually their relationships as, as people.
0: Thank you, Karen and Sam. And if you've enjoyed hearing Sam's take, do check out his weekly Spectator Books podcast, where he interviews all sorts of leading authors. Recent guests have included The Economist, Joseph Stieglitz, and Brett Easton-Ellis, author of American Psycho. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash books podcast to listen. And finally, why are people so grossed out by the food chain? In this week's issue, Laura Freeman writes about pickiness and sensitivity. When did we all become so disgusted by the reality of meat? Sainsbury's have recently introduced a no-touch meat pouch which contains pre-diced meat that can be tipped straight into the pan. So what's going on? I'm joined by two chefs with pretty strong stomachs for this sort of thing. James Wettler who also supplies kid goat meat to restaurants and supermarkets and Olivia Potts, spectator lice vintage chef. James Laura's piece this week says that we're grossed out by meat, fish, eggs, scales, suckers, shells and even bones. Um, is this something that you've noticed in your line of work?
6: Only because it's shown up in Articles like that. I mean, the the environment I work in is chefs who don't mind getting the hands dirty and are quite used to working with with large pieces of meat, especially the restaurants that I deal with that take whole carcasses direct. The thing that struck me about that, though, is that that's not something that you're born with. That's something that you learn. Because, I mean, you only have to read things like the the grim fairy tales to know that kids love squeamishness. And in the times that I've Got meat, or have bought half a pig home and butchered that with my with my son, and we we get a sausage machine and a mincer, and like he's prodding the teeth and pulling the ears, and you know that kind of stuff. And kids do that, and it, I don't think that. I don't think you're born squeamish of meat.
0: And I, think, how, I mean, how do you think people learn to be squeamish then? Is it, is it the um, internet or schools or?
6: I think that it's multifaceted. I think part of it is that there has been a move towards over hygiene. Like everybody spraying everything down, you know, all the time with disinfectants and all that kind of stuff. Like we are taught that, that meat carries germs and we're not, and maybe we're not taught how to cook it well enough to get rid of that threat. But the other thing that struck me about that sort of no-touch packaging is that storing chicken in plastic is – and allowing it – I mean, if you allow chicken to get warm and it's in plastic, that's the thing that's going to make you sick. With what we do – like, I sometimes walk through restaurants with whole carcasses over my shoulder when I'm delivering them. People's detachment from what that is – people misidentify all the time. People think it's a pig or they'll think it's a a deer, you know. So people aren't seeing this stuff. It's all become – as we get our meat from supermarkets we don't see local butchers so much you don't see animals hanging in windows you when i was a kid growing up in devon we had a livestock market in the local town so you would see the animals you'd understand they'd go off for slaughter people are being brought up and educated where those things happen and they're siloed off in you know uh, industrial estates on the edge of in the edge of cities you don't ever see any of that i guess you don't really understand how that how it all works
0: Livy, what do you make of Sainsbury's no-touch bags for meat? Are you appalled? Yes, of course.
7: No, I'm, I'm. First of all, I'm with James. I think. I think the problem is this strange, sanitised idea that we now have of meat, that it comes number one in plastic, number two in cuts, often very small cuts, and number three that there's one, maybe two ways to cook it, and you have to cook it well and long in order for it to be safe. I feel weirdly squeamish, actually, about about the the plastic bags that contain the chicken. I I, I
6: don't know. There's something about squeezing out. Yes, just it's like, like, it's, I don't want to do like that. Great. Children, <laughs> children,
7: baby food, like puree, yes. or something.
6: Also, the thing about the thing I love about cooking is not. Using the phrase "getting your hands dirty" is probably the wrong phrase, but I was marinated. Like I did a food festival in St Ives at the weekend, and I had to marinate some shoulders and marinate some legs. And part of that is getting your hands dirty. It's,
7: a visceral, it's actually, the visceral, it's the visceral physical side of it, isn't it? And that's you fun. slash the meat
6: and you rub yeah. the marinade into the meat, and that's part of it. And you that to me, if you're just slipping something out of a bag and plopping it into yeah. a, which seems like the right word. I mean,
0: do you think people enjoy food more when they know where it's come from, even if it is a bit visceral? Or, or there are Depends, some people who I mean, just see food as
6: a thing that they need to stop them being hungry. Not everybody sees food as a, like, I'm an obsessive because I've been a chef all my life and grown up around farmland and now I have a meat business, so I'm probably a food obsessive. So I don't think everybody sees it in the same way that either the listeners or or you do. But I think that there aren't many things that more education isn't the answer to, do you know what I mean? And I think this is one of them. We should be teaching much more cooking in school. I'm not the first person to say this, it's pretty obvious. You know, we should be teaching much more cooking in school. I think one of the other big problems in this whole system is that farming has become more and more demonized. People associate almost on a subconscious level that farming is inherently cruel. And I think that that is something else that pushes us towards making meat something that doesn't come from an animal. Therefore, especially with the media rise of veganism, which I think is what it is, rather than actual people becoming vegans, there's just more talk of it in the media. So in order to separate yourself from any sort of controversy or conflict if you remove the animal from the meat you are creating a space between that and the controversy mm-hmm. and i think that's a big problem because i work with lots of small farmers who i have a network of farms producing kid goat for me all over the country and they are full of people that are Compassionate and caring, and they want the best for the animals, and then they want to produce the best possible meat animal or the best possible dairy with the with the animals living in the best conditions possible.
0: Livy, you've just started a butchery course. I mean, what what made you want to do that, and has it changed your attitude to meat?
7: I think what made me want to start is that I didn't grow up around big pieces of meat, so I didn't know what to do with them, and I wanted to know what to do with them. And actually, in in, in this day and age. You could you could get a slightly older cookery book and learn it from there. But but other than that, you need someone who knows what they're doing to teach you. The only thing that's really changed my attitude to it is learning that there weren't a lot of people who wanted to do that. I had to fight quite hard to get the course to run so that I could learn about it. Again, James is completely right. It's, it's about education. It's about people understanding where the meat comes from. In order for that to happen, there have to be butchers there giving you pieces, advising you on how to cook things, talking to you. I think I'm right in saying that Tesco's are getting rid of their butcher's counters and deli counters and fish counters. So the ability to, is that right, James? I don't know, oh. but it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> um, I th- it's, it's certainly happening at my Tesco's. I think, it's, I think it's happening wider than that. And if that is the case, you are then only really going to have the choice in the big supermarkets of plastic packaged meat that you choose from an aisle rather than talking to an expert about it
6: i mean another thing that leads to this kind of atmosphere of mistrust in food is was the horsemeat scandal and the fact that they managed i don't think anyone went to prison for it and i think food fraud is a bigger problem than everybody realizes and i think that i think retailers selling Retailers, not just the people that are producing it, but retailers who are selling selling products that aren't labelled correctly, needs to be held accountable too. And so often, when these food fraud cases come up, the retailers have managed to sign a piece of paper that gets them off the hook. Should there be food fraud? Should food fraud be found out? And that, I think, is a big problem because all you're doing is adding more fuel to the idea that meat is inherently untrustworthy and. Best avoided, yeah. You know? And then you get into the whole vegan debate about whether we should be vegan, and you realize that that's complete nonsense. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Livy, finally finally? I mean, uh, have you got any good awful recipes you can share with listeners? Well, if listeners would like
7: to go back through the vintage chef archive, there is a, a steak and kidney pie with uh, a steak and kidney pudding with suet in it, which would um, would fulfil the brief there, which is excellent.
6: Heart is a heart is one of the best things you can eat. Ox heart is one of the best things you can eat. It is one of the cleanest tasting sort of muscly, almost steak-like offal. It is incredible.
7: How would you cook it? Would you just cook it? Cook
6: it medium mad Yeah, really? I mean, you just your butcher will be able to lay the heart out flat for you and remove the sort of ventricles Mm -hmm. and then it will look as if it was just like a really thin piece of minute steak and if you slice it really thin and just cook it medium rare it is amazing
0: i'm gonna do that this weekend thank you james and livy and that's it for this week but before you go just one final plug livy and i have our own new podcast edition to spectator radio it's called table talk and we talk to guests about their lives through food and drink Recent guests have included the broadcaster Adrian Charles, the restauranteur Jeremy Lee, and aspiring MEP and Boris's sister, Rachel Johnson. If you'd like to give it a listen, you can find it at spectator.co.uk forward slash tabletalk. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week.